This morning we're going to finish um, what we started last week. So turn to Leviticus chapter 19, if you would. Leviticus chapter 19. I'm going to read just the second half of the chapter, beginning in verse 19 uh, through the end, verse 37. So Leviticus chapter 19, starting in verse 19. This is the law of God. The Lord says, You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free. But he shall bring his compensation to the Lord, to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering, And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed. And he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And in the fourth year all of its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord, but in the fifth year you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. You shall not eat of any flesh with blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do to him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, a just hin. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt." And you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. Father, I pray that what we don't have today that you would give us. Lord, I pray that you would feed us from your word. That we would uh, remember the phrase that, that you would plant deep down in our minds and our hearts. I am the Lord your God who has redeemed you. Father, keep us. Hold fast to us as you have promised to. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Central American nation of Belize, um, it could be described as a tropical paradise. It's a small country. It's on the tip of the Yucatan Peninsula that borders uh, Mexico, Guatemala, and the Caribbean Sea. When you think of Belize, think of the Spanish conquistadors led by Christopher 
Columbus that began arriving and exploring the area in the late 1400s. Think of the English pirates of the 1700s that would seek shelter and, and resources along the coast of Belize. And then eventually colonies were established, English colonies, and, and eventually it brought the whole region under the control of the English crown. When you think of Belize, think of palm trees, sandy beaches, beautiful blue waters of the Caribbean. Think of coral reefs, tropical rainforests. Think of a rich Mayan history mixed with both the, the Spanish and English cultural influence and also think of the Amish. Technically, technically they're the beachy Amish and Old Order Mennonites who are living today in the tropical paradise of Belize. Now, some of you may know this, but let me just briefly. The Mennonites originated, and the, the Amish, they originated from the radical Anabaptist movement in Europe in the, in the 16th century. They were named after Menno Simmons, Simons, uh, a Dutch priest who led the community during those early years. And due to government restrictions, um, particularly regarding their, their pacifist stance against military service, they were forced to relocate several times. And so they ended up in Switzerland, and then eventually groups of them would journey to Prussia, and then Russia, in the six, actually in 1663, they arrived in Russia. However, when the government removed their exemption from military service, some groups decided to emigrate to North America, and many settled on the prairies of Saskatchewan in Canada. Well, fast forward to World War I, early 1900s. During that time, there was a growing anti-German sentiments around the world because of the war, really because of both world wars. This also was in Canada where the Canadian government imposed further restrictions and one of the restrictions that the Canadian government imposed was a, was a prohibition of the teaching of German as a language. This was the language of the Mennonites, as well as they also uh, were nervous about conscription into military service to fight in World War I. And so they were compelled now to leave Canada and go to Mexico. For a while, they found a, no, uh, a new home in the northern state of Chihuahua in Mexico. But then the Mexican government required them to participate in their social security program, which they, and, and when that happened, they felt it was time to relocate once again. And so by 1958, not really that long ago, they were able to settle on their own land in what was then called British Honduras. It's now known as Belize. For once, the government authorities welcomed them enthusiastically because if you know anything about the Amish and the Mennonites, they were able to clear rainforests and make way for some much-needed farmland. So in the 50s and 60s, the biggest concern for the government of Belize was not war, but being able to feed its own people. And the Old Order Mennonites proved themselves to be very adept at producing crops. They were able to help with this. And so today, if you visit this tropical Caribbean paradise... Not only do you have to be concerned about blowing out a flip-flop, 
stepping on a pop top, cutting your heel and making your way back home, let the hearer understand. You also have to watch out for road apples, and you might see some palm trees, clear blue water, and straw hats and bonnets. Why am I telling you about tropical Mennonites? I think it's actually a really good illustration of the distinctiveness of the people of Israel in the land of Canaan. But even then, even more so for us today, this is a picture really of two spiritual realities. First, this world system that we live in is foreign soil for the people of God. Now, we are far less concerned with the externals. We talked about a lot of that last week. But this world is not our home. And so we don't fundamentally fit in here. That brings me really to the second reality that a picture of tropical Mennonites illustrates for us. We, as the people of God, as Christians, we are called to live very distinct, set-apart lives. Again, this is not about the externals, so you, you can drive cars to church. It's not about those things. This is about how we live. And so for the Israelites, as we saw last week when we started here in Leviticus 19, the people of God have covenant obligations toward the God who has redeemed them and promised to set them apart as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was part of the covenant promises of God. And they responded with, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. And so God was requiring covenant loyalty. He was requiring loyalty from His people, Israel. And, and really, we, I said this last week, we saw this covenant loyalty in four specific areas. Holiness, love, distinctiveness. We're going to talk about that this morning. And then, and I kind of combined two here, kindness, honesty. Holiness, love, distinctiveness, and kindness, honesty. And so again, we looked at the first two last week. Verses 1 to 8 of Leviticus 19, it really covers a, a covenant loyalty in matters of holiness. And that actually, holiness is woven all through the chapter and really all through the law, all through the book of Leviticus. Holiness is not simply, remember, it's not simply the avoidance of evil. It's actually the practice of righteousness. And then we saw in that next section, verses 9 to 18 here of Leviticus 19, it's clearly about the, uh, what we sometimes call the second table of the law, which is summarized with that phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. And so the law, the Ten Commandments, um, it's often divided into those two, um, two parts, two tables, as we sometimes call them. The first four commandments are directed at God, and they're summarized by, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then commandments, really commandment number five through ten, are directed at human relationships. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We saw that God requires the Israelites to display their covenant loyalty to Him in how they treated their neighbors by their love. It, it, but it's not, just, 
It's not just holiness and love. The Israelites were also called to be distinct from both the Egyptians and the people of Canaan. So where they have come from, where God has redeemed them from, and where he was bringing them to the promised land, both Egypt and the land of Canaan. They're to be completely distinct, completely set apart from both cultures, both societies. And so the nation of Israel, if I could put it this way, the nation of Israel was to be distinct, as distinct from the pagan nations as Amos Schwartz is from a Jimmy Buffett song. So let's consider, or let me put it this way, as an Amish family is in a tropical paradise, right? Let, let's consider this idea of distinctiveness today. Distinctiveness. I, I, I could put it like this. God's people are to display covenant loyalty by maintaining the distinctiveness that he has called for. Now, as I've said, a strict meaning or a strict kind of definition or description of holiness is to be set apart, to live in such a way that is different from the world. So in the case of the Israelites, they were to be distinct, particularly from the Canaanites. Now, when it when it comes to discussions of the Bible and immorality and distinctiveness of Christians, for some reason, the world loves to pull a statement from verse 19 here out and use it against us. So, so look at verse 19. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. So the accusation often is this. Since you're likely, you're likely wearing um, some kind of synthetic or blended materials in some of your clothing somewhere, um, if that's true, if you're wearing some kind of cotton blend, synthetic something or other, if that's true, then you're breaking God's law. And so, therefore, if you're allowed to break this law, then I don't have to worry about any of the laws, the world says, right? Laws about morality don't apply. If that doesn't apply to you, then, then other laws don't apply to me. And by the way, if you, if you handed a Bible to someone who was um, challenging you with that example, and you said, really? can you show me where that is? They would have, and can you explain it to me? <laughs> they would have no idea where it was. But that's actually not a great argument because let's be honest, most of us couldn't find it either. They're just going to say, I, I, I've heard it somewhere. That might be helpful to prove a specific point, but that's not really how we give a ready defense for the faith, Right? We need to be able to give a ready defense for the faith. So what does this mean? Why do we believe this? Why do we hold to certain moral uh, um, values and, and mores and standards? Why do we believe what we believe? Why? Why is marriage only to be between one man and one woman? Why are homosexuality, adultery, and fornication all considered as being sinful in the eyes of God? As well as, for example disobeying your parents? Why are these things sinful? So let's, 
answer some of these questions today. What does verse 19 mean? Well, the first two laws, there's, there's a few there. There's, like, there's three laws written out there. And the first two are actually pretty easy to explain. In Genesis, at the creation account, we read that the Lord created both animals and plants, and he uses the phrase, after their kind. And to ignore those distinctions, to ignore the distinctions that God has put into place, or, or worse, to try to erase those distinctions, is to rebel against God. Now, it should be noted here that kind, the word kind there, it means different animals. So the prohibition is that the Israelites, for example, were not to try to breed their cattle with their sheep and so create some kind of uh, woolly beef that is more smaller and more easier to manage. I love what Matthew Henry wrote about this in his commentary. He, he says this, God in the beginning made the cattle after their kind, Genesis 1.25. And we must acquiesce in the order of nature God hath established, believing that it is best and sufficient and not covet monsters. <laughs> he goes on to say, and what God has joined, we must not separate. And so what he has separated, we must not join. We should be able to see just from these first two prohibitions that what this is really about is about stepping outside of the God-ordained boundaries that He has set into place. This is one of our biggest problems today. We don't like boundaries. We don't like somebody telling us what we can do. But God has put boundaries in place. The Canaanites, the Canaanites stepped outside of God's boundaries generations before. The Israelites, the Israelites were to stay inside of God's boundaries and so to be distinct from all of the nations around them. They were not to do what is right in their own eyes, but to do what God has required. We know that this refers to God's boundaries for them specifically because this third prohibition regarding two different types of material, look at verse 19 again. You shall keep my statutes, you shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Now, I want you to notice this, and, and this is actually a very important detail here. The Bible here does not prohibit the making of a garment from two different kinds of material. Only the wearing of it. Why is that important? Why do you think that might be? You are not to wear a material of two different uh, types, two different kinds. The answer to that question is actually um, pretty easy. Do, do you know who, who was called to wear garments made of two different types of material? There was actually a group of people that God specifically said, you are to wear garments of two different types of kinds of material. Listen to the opening verses of Exodus chapter 28. God says this to Moses in Exodus chapter 28. God says, then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. 
You shall speak to all the skillful, whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, piece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. And they shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue, of purple, and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it and be one piece with it of gold, blue, purple, scarlet, yarns, and fine twined linen. Can you see where this is going? This law here in Leviticus 19, verse 2 tells us, the verses 1 and 2, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, for you shall be holy, for I the Lord am your God. This is addressed specifically to the people of Israel, to the non-priestly Israelites. They were prohibited from doing priestly work. Numbers chapter 3 tells us this. You shall appoint Aaron and his sons, the high priests and his descendants. They shall, they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. This says, this verse here, Leviticus 19, 19, has nothing, nothing to do at all with what any of us are wearing or can wear. In fact, the New Testament, in the New Testament, God's ministers are no longer distinguished by clothing, but by their character, right? The principle of sort of a distinguishing of ministers is still seen in the New Testament. So, for example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13 says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. But if you noticed, I, I'm not a priest. I don't claim to be a priest. This has nothing to do with how the pastor dresses or whether or not you're allowed to wear cotton-blended shirts. And, and as a matter of fact, Peter, Peter writes to scattered, persecuted Christians, and he uses the language of the covenant, the language of this covenant, and he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood to all Christians. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, not merely out of Egypt and into the land of Canaan, but rather out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As Christians, we are a royal priesthood. And the garments that we are clothed in, they are far greater than any yarn or fine twined linen could ever be. 
than anything of Aaron and his sons. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, as a bride adorns adorns herself with her jewels. The people of Israel... The people of Israel were to be distinct in how they farmed. They were to be distinct in the clothing that they, that they wear. And we are distinct in our redemption. We are distinct because he has clothed us in Christ's righteousness. But it also even goes further than that. Verse 20 to 22. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave, assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free. But he shall bring his uh, compensation to the Lord, to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram uh, for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering uh, before the Lord for his sin that he has committed. And he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed." This law is actually kind of tricky because we don't have the same kinds of um, status categories in our society today or or we don't have like a class system today. But this this was written in a world of arranged marriages. And in this scenario, the the servant girl was promised to another and yet, yet not ransomed That means that the bride price had not yet been paid. So whatever the agreement was between the two households, that that swap had not occurred yet. She was promised to someone. In other words, her marriage was arranged, maybe even while she was still very young, but it had not yet been established. And so essentially this means that there was no adultery here, but there was fornication. That's the point of this. Now, we have to kind of be careful because sometimes we can read our own, um, what we think into this. It doesn't say that the, that the master was the guilty one here. It, it could be anybody. It, it could be, to be frank, it could be that she had a boyfriend but was already pledged by her family to someone else. That's the idea. Had there been adultery, the punishment would have been death. But since it is merely fornication, if I could say that, the man, the man is called to take responsibility, to pay the penalty, a ram for a guilt offering, it says, and then, and then he would receive forgiveness. Now remember, the purpose here is about distinction. See, the people of Israel... In the, in the, uh, amongst the nation of Israel, even vulnerable servant girls were to be protected. Whereas for the Canaanites, girls like this had no value at all. Or, or rather, their value would, would not be seen in their dignity, but in their bodies only. This is a distinction. It sounds, when we read this, like awful. They're servant girls. They're slaves, the ESV says. But God gives dignity 
and actually calls in this case for the man, the boy, whoever it is, to take responsibility for his sin. Again, the distinctions now, they just continue in verse 23. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. Again, this is a distinguishing of the people of Israel from the pagans. What have the pagans done to the land? Look back in chapter 18, verse 24. Maybe it's even on the same page. Verse 18, verse 24, the Lord says, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, uh, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger or the who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you, did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. Sin. Sin is invasive. Sin is so invasive that even the land becomes infected and unclean. Consider Consider the invasive species at the lake. Making it unclean, we could say. (laughs) Consider the invasive species taking over in your own gardens. It's a result of the curse. It's a result of sin being in the world. That's what's going on here. Sin is so invasive that it infects everything. And so the people of Israel were commanded to to cultivate and yet not eat of the fruit of their labor for five years, he says. This is a test of faithfulness. This will see, they're going to see, they're going to plant these trees, they're going to take over the land, they're going to cultivate the land, they're going to see that the tree was good for food, that it is a delight to the eyes, and they are called to do better than Adam and Eve. They are called to not eat of it. This also gives them, gives them hope. Not only are they to be obedient for five years, for five years you, you have hope because when five years are up, God is going to pour out his abundant blessing in the form of the fruit of the land. God has promised, I will take care of you. I will meet all of your needs. Obey me. You're gonna, that means, do you know what that means for the people of Israel who have been wandering? They're actually beginning to wander as we're reading this. They're, they're in the first months of their wandering of, of a whole generation, 40 years. Do, do you know what five years means? Cultivate the land for four years. On the fourth year, it's a holy offering to God. On the fifth year, you're going to eat of it. That's permanency. Some of you have lived in your homes for more than five years, and it feels like home. You've worked in the yard. You've planted trees and gardens, and you've, you've made your house your home, and it's your permanent place. 
The people of Israel don't have any of that, but God was promising them it. You're going to go there, the land that I am promised to give to Abraham. You're going to cultivate it, and after five years, you're going to start eating of that fruit. God's people must remain distinct from the world. But then in verses 26 to 31, the law here actually takes a a, a kind of a decidedly darker turn. And we could say that God's people, we could summarize those verses in this way. God's people must specifically remain distinct from God's enemies, from pagan idolaters. Just, Just look at verses 26 to 28. You shall not eat any flesh with blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. This is actually pretty clear um, if you look at it. This is a reference to what is sometimes called the cult of the dead. This is a celebration of death death that the, that the pagan cultures were steeped in at the time. And so they were to avoid the eating of blood. We saw this already in chapter 17, but here it is specifically connected with idolatry. They were to avoid anything that smacks of witchcraft. That's what's going on in these verses. We see it in verse 26 and then again in verse 31. But we need to be careful We need to be careful not to pull verses 27 and 28 out of that context, that context of the darkness and witchcraft to which they are to stand out over and against. This is not saying that anyone who trims their beard or gets a tattoo is therefore a witch. That's not what this is saying, right? Some of the guys with beards say amen. This is about telling Israel to avoid pagan rituals, rituals that specifically and purposefully mar and make grotesque. That's what this is about. It's not about bushy beards. It's not about flower tattoos or whatever. This is about the grotesque. This is about the demonic. This is about making yourself purposefully repulsive and and doing so in a way to identify with the paganism of the land, the paganism that came before you. And the people of Israel were to have nothing to do with this. Today, generally speaking, neither tattoos nor specific hairstyles have, have the same kind of pagan associations that they did in ancient Israel. My grandfather, he had an anchor tattoo on his forearm. He served during World War II on the aircraft carrier, the USS Ticonderoga in the South Pacific. No one who saw that, it was a very crude tattoo as well. Very primitive, I don't know anything about tattoo technology, but I would say it was very primitive tattoo technology. No one who saw that wondered if he had sacrificed his children to Molech. No one who saw that tattoo took it to be a sign of his pagan idolatry. In In fact, I'm sure that most people who saw it would have clearly understood what it meant. He was a part of 
the greatest generation who fought World War II. Plus he wore a hat that said the USS Ticonderoga in it forever, so he was clearly a sailor. <laughs> Having said that, though, there are some today, this is especially prevalent, this is really a, beginning to be a new thing again, I think. It's especially prevalent in the gay and trans community who are working to recapture these things as outward symbols of their rebellious hearts. You can see it, you, you can see it in their hair coloring and style, and you can see it in the very specific tattoo marks that they are appropriating. And so all I'm saying here is this. I want you to listen very carefully. Be aware and be very careful. And please, please be very careful in what I am, what I am saying and what I am not saying. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with tattoos or anything wrong with trimming your beard. They both are in the same category here. And I regularly trim my beard. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with those things. I am saying that we are called to live as distinct people. We should not associate or even wonder if we are associated with the pagan idolatry around us. We are to call to live as holy people, set apart, distinct from the worldly pagan idolatry that's on the rise all around us. And all the while, we need to remember, we need to remember this and display this, that this is about internal, not merely external. Remember Peter's admonition. I, I brought this up last week. Remember Peter's admonition. He said this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. God requires covenant loyalty in these, in these four specific areas here. Holiness, love, distinctiveness, and then finally this last one that I kind of put two together, kindness and honesty. Kindness and honesty. They, uh, they, they sort of overlap all of these final verses. Pick it up in verse 32. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do to him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in matters of length or weight or quantity. You shall have a just balance, a just weight, a just ephah, a just hin. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. Now these final laws really are just kind of simply addressing the way that the Israelites were to, to treat both, uh, in some cases, the vulnerable and also those they do business with. Or, or even, in some cases here, have court disputes with, come to disagreements with some of them. And the point of all of this is that righteousness must be displayed. Consider this from a, sort of a big picture. The world treats the elderly. The world treats the immigrant. 
The world treats, we could say, asylum seekers. The world treats legal opponents with contempt, or even political opponents with contempt. Christians are called to imitate God through kindness, honesty, and righteousness. We are called to holy living motivated by love. We're called to these things. And all the people that we come into contact with. Now consider this. The New Testament supports um, the morality behind all of these laws as we've worked through this. And even while the New Testament changes some of the specific laws, uh, like the, the priestly garments, or whether or not, Jesus had a beard, right? Whether or not uh, we can have facial hair or even trim it. While the New Testament changes some of the specific laws, love is brought into every aspect of our lives through obedience to the moral law, to the morality behind these things. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 10 says this, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. If we work to love one another, we will be obedient to God's law. Holiness, holiness is not simply the avoidance of evil, it's the practice of righteousness. Holiness is all wrapped up in love. It's all wrapped up in loving one another. And so let, let me ask this final question. What does all of this look like in Ohio in 2023? Have you noticed, as we've worked through this chapter, um, especially this chapter, I've pointed this out, but I hope you've seen it as we've worked through this. Almost all of these laws relate to interactions with other people. Almost all of them relate to interactions with other people. And 16 times throughout this chapter, God says, I am the Lord. Love your neighbor I am the Lord, over and over and over again. This isn't merely a, an abstract concept for us, holiness, love. It has, it has teeth, it has skin. This is a reality to be fleshed out actually in relationship. Right? It doesn't say avoid one another and thereby you don't sin against anybody if you just avoid them. It says love one another. Proverbs 27, 17 famously says, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. That's not simply the life verse of every men's ministry in the world. That's, that's actually applicable to all of us. Living as the church living in community, coming together and eating meals together, coming together and serving one another. And you know what? Texting each other during the week. Because 
in many ways, we don't see each other during the week. Some do. Others don't. We work far away. We live far away. Are we texting each other through the week? Just, hey, I'm just praying for you. How are you doing? Living as the church is one way in which we sharpen each other. We love one another. We confess our sins, our unholiness to one another. We spur one another on in love and good deeds. And as we do these things, as we continue to keep Christ at the center, our holy lives will increasingly be characterized by integrity, honesty, faithfulness, love, holiness. We will be distinct from the world around us if we love one another. Jesus, Jesus said that. By this will all people know you are my disciples, know you are distinct from the rest of the world by your love for one another. And so I would encourage you, as I know that many of you do, not only do we get together and have lunches a couple times a month, but I would encourage you to get together in each other's homes to love one another, to serve one another, to pray for one another, to warm up some frozen pizzas together and just get together and have a good time. Put stuff on the grill, whatever. Love one another. And as we do this, we will push and pull each other to be holy as Christ is holy. We will push and pull each other lovingly to be holy as Christ is holy. And I can guarantee you, we will be distinct. We will be and continue to be distinct from the world around us. Let's pray. Father, in many ways, we are already distinct. We are distinct because we have been marked by Christ. We have been given His name, washed in the blood of the Lamb. We are distinct because you have called us from uh, the world and to assemble together. We are distinct as we gather this morning to sing and pray, to sit and listen to your word, to hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. We are distinct in these things. But Lord, I pray that as time marches on, as we see the day drawing near, that we would more and more be drawn together that we would be able to um, sharpen one another. That we would display kindness and honesty with one another. Love for one another. That we would be able to say to one another, be holy as, as Christ is holy. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. That we would be able to share, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of God. Lord, knowing all the while that it is Christ that we are keeping our eyes on, that it was Christ who gave himself for us to redeem for himself a people for his own possession, that it was Jesus Christ who went to the cross bearing the sin of his people, the sin that he did not commit, that he might make for himself a holy nation, a nation of priests who intercede for one another, who pray for one another,
who love one another, knowing that it was Christ who did this for us. And so, Lord, as we come to the table this morning, we come with thankful hearts, knowing that it is Jesus Christ who has gone before us, who always lives to intercede for us, who has, who has sent his spirit, who is our, the guarantee of our salvation until we acquire possession of it, Lord, who is interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. Father, we pray for those who are lonely, that you would use your church and your spirit and your word to comfort them. Father, we pray for those who are struggling with sin, secret sin, for those who are um, trying to be a part of the church and don't understand how or, Lord, there could be, we all have different stories. I pray that you would continue to draw us close together to you, with Christ at the center. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.